And as you're turning there, I'm going to ask you, uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Benjamin Franklin. Trust me on this one. I'm, we're getting somewhere with the points. So did you know Benjamin Franklin didn't always want independence for the British colonies in North America? He didn't always want independence. In fact, Benjamin Franklin wanted to keep the, he wanted the colonies to be independent and, and serve themselves and yet still serve and be part of the British Empire. He thought that was the way to maximum power. In fact, Benjamin spent a lot of time in London. He loved the city. He loved the city's sophistication. He loved its sophisticated thinkers like Adam Smith and David Hume. In fact, Benjamin Franklin would have moved and stayed in London if not for his wife. His wife, Deborah's heart was in the city of brotherly love in Philadelphia. And so he came back. But for as much as Franklin liked London and liked the British Empire and wanted the colonies to stay a part of them, there was a tipping point for him. And it revolved around two events in Boston. You might have heard of them. First, a massacre and then a tea party. Now, after the Boston Massacre, Franklin heard and he found out that it was British leaders of Massachusetts who encouraged the British army to crack down on these Bostonians. And so Franklin secretly spread this knowledge that it was the Massachusetts government that did this. He spread that throughout the colonies. He wanted the colonialist anger to be redirected away from the British Parliament and toward the Massachusetts government. But his plan backfired. And everybody was now mad at Britain. And this led to the Boston Tea Party. And now words got to London. And London calls Benjamin Franklin, who they knew had spread this information. They called Benjamin Franklin to stand before Parliament on January 29th, 1774. It was advisors to the Crown and members of the House of Commons. They all gathered to ridicule Benjamin Franklin. They even accused him of fomenting a rebellion. And meanwhile, Franklin stood silent. But this was his tipping point. Historian H.W. Brands says that Franklin walked into that meeting as an Englishman and walked out of that meeting as an American. Now, you might not know, but Benjamin Franklin actually had an influential son. His name was William William Franklin, uh, Benjamin had him out of wedlock, which is a major taboo of the day. And yet Benjamin still raised him. William would accompany his dad on his travels to London. And William soon also fell in love with the city that his dad fell in love with. And William made the right connections when he was there. Soon enough, William Franklin was appointed as the royal governor of New Jersey. And despite William uh, witnessing his father change sides from the British to the colonies, despite William's deep love for his dad, despite seeing the same injustices that his dad saw, and despite repeated pleas from his dad, Benjamin. Unlike his dad, Benjamin, William remained loyal to Britain even until his death. He never reached the same tipping point as his dad. Now, in the American Revolution, there were just two sides you are either on one or the other. In the Gospel of John, there are just two sides. There is light and there is dark. These sides reflect the most deepest, most important division that there is. There are those who trust and follow Jesus Christ, and there are those who don't. Now, in John chapter 6, 
we see a long dialogue coming to an end. And the people surrounding Jesus reach a tipping point. Some fall on the side of refusing to come to Jesus and they leave. Others fall on the side of trusting in Jesus and they stay. So today we're going to see what causes people to leave Jesus and what causes people to come to Jesus and stay with him. And their experience will beg us to ask questions of ourselves. Questions like, will I be offended at Jesus or will I come to Jesus? Will I leave Jesus or will I stay with Jesus? Friends, there are only two sides. There can be no straddling of the fence. You either fall on one side or the other. John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71 Follow along as I read. After I read it, I'll say, this is God's word. If you agree with me, would you say, thanks be to God. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Then he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Main point or main idea of this passage is that those who believe in and stay with Jesus have been convinced that there is no one else who can give life. Those who believe in and stay with Jesus have been convinced that there is no one else who can give life. We'll unpack that main point in two big questions. Will you take offense at Jesus or come to Jesus? Will you leave Jesus or stay with Jesus? Big question number one. Will you take offense at Jesus or, or come to Jesus. Now, to answer that question well, we have to answer two sub-questions underneath it, kind of breaking down the question's two big parts. Sub-question number one, why do, ta- why do people take offense at Jesus? Why is it that people take offense at Jesus? Maybe by yourself, even before we dive into the passage, you could write down one or two words. Why do you think people take offense at Jesus? Well, let's look back at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Now, later on in this passage, Jesus will speak directly to the 12 disciples, but here he speaks to a larger group. That word disciple simply means student or follower. And when we define it this way, there were more disciples than just the 12 disciples. So this larger group of disciples Take offense at something that Jesus said. It's more than just they misunderstood something that Jesus said. It's that something Jesus said offended them. That word 
This is a hard saying. That word hard doesn't mean it's difficult to understand. It means it's harsh or offensive. Now, what is it that Jesus said that offended them? Well, leading up to this point, there are lots of contestants that might fit the bill. Maybe a little bit of review of John chapter 6. After Jesus fed this massive group of people with a tiny amount of food, you know this as the feeding of the 5,000. After that, the people who ate that food came and searched for Jesus again. And when they found Jesus, Jesus told them, you guys aren't interested in me. You guys just want the stuff that I can give you. That's pretty offensive. (laughs) Well, then Jesus tells them that they need more than just physical bread. They need to believe in him. He tells them even the bread, even the physical bread that came from heaven that God gave them during the Exodus after uh, he saved the Israelites from Egypt, even that physical bread wasn't enough. The people who ate that eventually died. Jesus tells them he is the spiritual bread from heaven who gives eternal life. He can give them what Moses could not give them. Jesus, a common Galilean, just like all of them, claims to be from heaven. And that's offensive to them. And then just for the cherry on top, Jesus says that he will give life by giving up his life. He says that to believe in him is not just to believe in him vaguely, but to believe in him is to believe in the one whose flesh will be broken and whose blood will be spilt. And they take offense to that as well. Now, among all those things that could have offended them, what is it that did offend them in this moment? I don't know if it's spelled out for us exactly, but I do think that Jesus's response in verses 61 and 62 might give us a clue. Look at what Jesus says. It seems like the main thing this group is offended by is Jesus's claim to come from heaven. I think we get a clue of that from the broader context of John, because this claim got Jesus into trouble over and over again, right? This claim to be the son of God, that's what got Jesus into hot water in chapter five. That's what will get Jesus into hot water in the rest of the book. Jesus's claim to be distinct from and yet equal to God the Father. I think this is why they're upset, Even looking at the immediate context, I think Jesus is using an argument from the lesser to the greater. In verses 61 and 62, Jesus is basically telling them, if you guys are offended by me coming from heaven, just imagine how offended you'll be when I go back to heaven. So we can go back to our sub-question. Why don't people come to Jesus? Why are people offended by him? Well, this large group of disciples is no different from the rest of us. You peel back all the layers. People don't come to Jesus because of pride. That's the reason underneath it all. You can dress it up with layers of intellectual objections. And they did the same thing. They've said in their heads that we have all these reasons in our mind why we know you really didn't come from heaven. Even back in chapter 6, verse 42, they said Jesus... We saw you grow up. We know your mom and dad. There's no way you came from heaven. But the thing is, unbelief isn't just a head issue. It's a heart issue. Our hearts are too proud to come to Jesus. Because here's the deal. If Jesus' claim to come from heaven is true, if his claim to be the eternal son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us, if that is true, well, then guess what that means for you and for me? 
That means you and I aren't king. Jesus is. And that offends our pride. With the arrival of Jesus, there is a rival to who reigns on the throne of your heart. And our proud hearts will defend that throne for ourselves. Now, Jesus says that they take offense at his claim to come from heaven, but he also says they're going to take offense when he ascends back to heaven. That's curious to me, because this seems like such a glorious truth, doesn't it? If you saw someone that goes back up to heaven, how would you be offended by that? Well, think of the path that Jesus has to take to get back to heaven. To get back, to ascend back to heaven, Jesus must die on a cross and rise again. And Jesus says this many times, including John chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. You can flip back a couple of pages and look there with me. John 3, verses 13 to 15. Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. How will he get back to heaven? He says, Well, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That lifting up refers to Jesus being lifted on a cross. This path back to heaven offends our pride. This path back to heaven says that we can't get to heaven on our own. We must be rescued by someone dying in our place. This path back to heaven says that victory actually looks like defeat for Jesus. This path to heaven says that the way up is actually down. This path to heaven is not hardwired into yours or into my heart. That's what we read earlier, that the word of the cross is folly. It's foolish to those who are perishing. It offends our pride. That's why people don't come to Jesus. I've heard it explained like this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news that the son of God came to rescue sinners by living the life they didn't live, dying the death that they deserve, and rising again three days later, defeating sin and death. The gospel of Jesus Christ is like medicine people are convinced is poison. Medicine that people are convinced is poison. So imagine a doctor telling you that you have a terminal disease But there is a cure. But somehow you think that the cure will actually kill you. You think that the medicine is poison. You think that this medicine will take away your life when it will actually give you life. My friend, if you haven't come to Jesus, if you don't trust in him as savior, if you don't follow him as king, I want you to know this. Jesus isn't the poison that you think he is. He's the cure. He will not take away your life. He will give you life because he gave up his own life. Trust in him. But just in this first sub-question, why don't people come to Jesus? Uh, One more thing to notice. Throughout these opening verses, see that Jesus isn't surprised when people don't come to him. He isn't surprised by that. Verse 61, he knows that people grumble about him. Verse 64, it says, he knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. Now we're going to circle back to this later on. But for now, I was just struck. We should act like our Lord. We shouldn't be surprised when people are offended by Jesus and the gospel and the claims of the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that we throw away standards of common decency. I'm not saying that we become cynical and think all people just are the worst and not hopeful. 
But what I am saying is that I see a lot of Christians, I see especially a lot of American Christians who expect the world and the world's people and the world's government to act like they're Christian when they're not Christians. They're surprised. It's Jesus is good news, but we are proud people. And we shouldn't be surprised when people refuse, resist, and oppose Christ and his church. So second sub-question, why do people come to Jesus then? If we see why people don't come to Jesus, why do, why do people come to Jesus? Well, from the start, it's worth observing what's not the answer. Here in these verses, people don't end up coming to Jesus because Jesus doctors or alters the truth about himself. Right? Think, think about going out to a restaurant. I know a lot of you enjoy Outback Steakhouse. Right? If, if you've eaten a steak at Outback Steakhouse, you know that one of Outback's signatures is they, they put this certain mixture of spices and seasoning on their steaks. Now, I happen to enjoy it, but if you don't like the spices and seasonings on their steaks, what can you do? What can you ask your waiter? Don't put it on. Would you mind just holding off the spices and seasonings? And they'll say, of course, we'll happily oblige with that. Now, see, people think that they can do the same thing with Jesus. They think they can hold off the parts that don't suit their palate and that they don't like. But the thing is, Jesus isn't a a compilation of ingredients that you could just throw in. All of it is baked in. You can't remove it. So people might say, I I don't like the claim that Jesus is the only way of heaven. Can, Can you withhold that? Can you put that on the side? I don't like the claim that Jesus came to rescue people from hell. Can you withhold that? I don't like the claim that Jesus is equal to God the Father as the second person of the Trinity. Can you withhold that? No, friends, people don't come to Jesus because we accommodate what suits their palate. Because if we do that, they won't really be coming to Jesus, will they? They'll be coming to a version of themselves. Yes, there are effective and ineffective ways to communicate the truth about Jesus, but we are never to change the truth about Jesus. So what's the answer then? Why do people come to Jesus? Well, I'm going to give you an overarching statement, and then I'm going to show my work. Is that okay with you? Okay. Those who have believed in God the Son have done so because they have been made alive by God the Spirit and chosen by God the Father. I'll repeat that. Those who have believed in God the Son have done so because they have been made alive by God the Spirit and chosen by God the Father. Let me show my work. Made alive by God the Spirit. Look at verse 63. Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Last time I checked, dead people don't give life to themselves. Last time I checked, no one has ever performed open heart surgery on themselves. No one has a taste for Jesus on their own. None of us have an appetite for him. So the spirit of God works through the word of God so that we believe in the son of God. Yes, we are the ones who actually believe, but the spirit makes us alive so that we can and will believe. The Spirit gives us a taste for Jesus so that we who used to not desire him now do desire him. It's like the Valley of Dry Bones from Ezekiel chapter 37. God tells Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? 
Ezekiel answered, O Lord God, you know. Then God said to Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. The Spirit of God gives life through the word of God so that we believe in the Son of God. Friends, this is the doctrine of regeneration. If the flesh is truly no help at all, as Jesus says, then the Spirit's work to give us new hearts through the word of God so that we believe in the Son of God, that work is good news. Because it means we wouldn't believe without it. We sing this truth in a song we sing often, O great God, I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. Why do people come to Jesus? Those who have believed in God the Son have done so because they have been made alive by God the Spirit and because they have been chosen by God the Father. Look at verse 65. Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So in this verse, Jesus says, I've already told you guys this. Back in verse 44 of chapter 6, Jesus said, no one can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws him. Verse 37, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And here again in verse 65, Jesus emphasizes our inability. Again, he says, no one can come to me. Like he said in verse 63, the flesh is no help at all. This reflects what's called the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean that you and I are as bad as we could be. It means that sin has so affected each one of us that we are bent away from God, that our hearts are dead to him and don't desire him. It says that our inability is, not, is due to our sin, not to God. It says that we can't come to Christ on our own because on our own we won't come to Christ. It reminds me of another song that I heard. I've been blessed by my wife who has made me listen to Taylor Swift's most recent album. But Taylor is a theologian despite her not knowing it. In her song, Anti-Hero, we could reflect this and say, hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. That reflects total depravity, our inability If our inability is true, if the flesh is no help at all, if no one can come to Jesus on their own, well, then the Spirit's work in regeneration and the Father's work in election is really good news. Because if the Father didn't choose us, if the Father left it to us, we would never have chosen him. And we sing the good news of election in the song, All I Have is Christ. We sing, I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. If you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. If God the Father does not choose, if God the Spirit does not make alive, then we will not come to God the Son. This theology, this truth about God is meant to lead us to doxology, worship of God. If this is how people come to Jesus, then salvation is entirely of God, not of us. Father, Son, Spirit, from beginning to end. 
And after reflecting on these truths, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty six, our heart's response to this, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So my friend, if you're not a Christian, if you don't trust in Jesus Christ to save you from the power and the penalty of your sin, if you do not submit to Jesus as king of your heart and life, today is the day of salvation. Come to him and believe. Tell Jesus, I can't save myself. I can't give life to myself, but you can. And I trust you and what you have done to rescue sinners like me. And I want to follow you all of my days. My friend, that last part of the prayer is very important. I want to follow you all of my days. It reminds us that true belief in Jesus is not just a one-time decision. True belief in Jesus is an ongoing discipleship. It brings us to our second big question. Second big question I have for you in light of our passage. Will you leave Jesus or will you stay with Jesus? Will you leave Jesus or will you stay with Jesus? Similar to our first big question, I'm going to answer two smaller ones within it. So first sub-question. Why do people leave Jesus? Why do people leave Jesus? Look at verse 66. It says, after, many of his, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So this group of people hears Jesus not backing down after they're offended by him, and then they leave. And why do they do this? Well, again, I think we could say underneath all the layers, it's pride. They leave because underneath it all, they say, I'm going to trust and follow my wisdom, my preferences, my plan, and not Jesus's. But I do want to clarify something here. Look closely again at verse 66. Who is this group of people who left? What label does John use? What does John call them? He calls them disciples, doesn't he? We need to clarify something because if we just looked at this verse, we might conclude that some who start off as Jesus's disciples stop being Jesus's disciples. That's what we might conclude. But other verses on this subject will help us clarify and be more precise than that. It's not that some who start off as disciples stop being disciples. It's that not all who appear to be Jesus's disciples are actually Jesus's disciples. I'll repeat that. Not all who appear to be Jesus's disciples are actually Jesus's disciples. It's not that some came to Jesus and then left Jesus. It's that those who leave Jesus never really came to Jesus in the first place. Listen to how John explains it in another book from 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Friends, true disciples of Jesus aren't just those who make a decision. They are those who make a decision and persevere. Their perseverance to continue following Jesus shows that their belief in Jesus is real. The perseverance is an evidence of their faith, that it's genuine. 
It's what Jesus talks about in the parable of the soils. Maybe you remember this. It's recorded in one place, like Mark, in Mark chapter 4. What happens here? A farmer goes out. He, he scatters seed. It falls on different kinds of soil. Some fall on shallow soil. Some seed falls on rocky soil. Other on thorny soil. Some on good soil. The shallow soil shows no sign of life at all. It shows that the response to Jesus is a refusal to come to Jesus. But the rocky and the thorny soil do show some signs of life, but the signs are short-lived. People like this might respond favorably to Jesus, but they do not truly follow him. Eventually, either the goals and pleasures of this life are more precious to them than Jesus or the hardships of life sway them to say following Jesus isn't worth it. But then there's the good soil. And how is the good soil different? Well, the good soil, that the seed takes root, it bears fruit, and it lasts. It's not that our work to persevere in following Jesus, that's not what saves us. It proves that we are saved. Our work to persevere in following Jesus proves that he has saved us. And it's a sobering truth, isn't it? Perseverance is a mark of a true Christian. It's not meant to make us doubt. It's meant to make us keep going. Christian brother and sister, here's what I know will happen to each one of you, and myself included. Each one of you will have a time in your life that's just more demanding. A time when there are more pressures and more responsibilities, even a time when there are more opportunities, like with school or with work. And maybe that describes you right now, a time of your life that's just more demanding. And the reality of it is that you have less time to set aside for deliberate focus on Christ, deliberate focus on Christ's word and Christ's people. But the temptation of this time, the temptation of having less time is making no time. My friend, your faith in Jesus does not apply only when you have a wide open schedule, but even when you have a busy one. Keep going, persevere. Jesus is worth it. My friend, if you're like me, I, I know this will happen to all of us. There will be times in your life that are just more discouraging. Times when you have more loss and more pain and more heartache. And maybe that time is right now for you in your life. And the reality of this time is that you just won't feel like pursuing Jesus. My friend, the, the one you have faith in is true, not just when everything's going well. He is true always. Keep going. Persevere in following Jesus. He is worth it. So why do people leave Jesus? Well, because they never really came to Jesus in the first place. These so-called disciples in John 6, 66, remind us that not all who appear to follow Jesus actually do follow Jesus. True disciples aren't just those who have made a decision. They prove their decision to believe is sincere because they keep believing and they keep following. Just one more quick application of this. This influences our mission as a church. You think through this. This influences our mission as a church. You remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28? What does Jesus tell us to do? Does he say, go out and make decisions? That's not what he says. He says, go out and make disciples. 
Yes, discipleship to Jesus begins with a decision for Jesus, but it sure as heck doesn't end there. And so many Christians and churches act like it does. Discipleship to Jesus continues with persevering and following Jesus. So that's why our time together each Sunday is not just a big evangelism rally. Yet we address non-Christians to be sure, but we must do more than just call people to start following Jesus. We must help and equip people to keep following Jesus. Colossians 1 is what the Apostle Paul does. He works to present people mature in Christ. 1 Corinthians 14, he says, when you get together as a church, do everything for the building up of the body so that people who believe in Jesus keep believing in Jesus. That's because Jesus is interested more than in just decisions. He wants disciples. If, we're, if all we're looking for is just decisions, then we'll just do whatever we can to get people to pray a prayer and then just send them on their way. But if we want disciples, then we, then we will do what we can to help those who believe in Jesus to continue following Jesus. We'll bring them into the teaching and the care and the accountability of the church. We'll bring them into church membership. Church membership helps us persevere to follow Jesus. My friend, if your faith in Jesus is going to be more than just a one-time decision, if it's going to actually be an ongoing discipleship, then you're going to have to follow Jesus among other Christians. And you're going to have to do this as a meaningful member of a local church. If you are going to help your fellow Christians to persevere in following Christ, which is, by the way, a command that Jesus has given to you, if you're going to do that, then the context to do that is being a meaningful member of a local church. The decision to follow Christ is not a one-time act, but an ongoing lifestyle. And you can't and you weren't meant to do this on your own. All right, second sub-question. Say, we asked first, why do people leave Jesus? Because they never truly came. So why do people stay with Jesus? Verse 67, Jesus asked the disciples, do you want to go away as well? Here, Jesus isn't asking this for his own sake. Jesus isn't feeling sorry for himself about all the Twitter followers he lost. He's not looking for a quick pick-me-up. He asked this for his disciples' sake. He wants them to articulate their faith for themselves. And as is often the case, Peter speaks up for the rest of the group. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Maybe look at Peter's answer a little bit more closely. You'll see the reason why disciples stay with Jesus. They stay because they've been convinced of the utter uniqueness of Jesus. They've been convinced of the utter uniqueness of Jesus, that there is no one else to go to, that there is no one else like him, that there is there's not, he, that Jesus is not just a holy one of God, as if there's an array of options. No, Jesus is the holy one of God. That there is no one else who gives life by his word. That there is no one else who is life itself. That there is no one else who is the way, the truth, the life, the uniqueness of Jesus. That's what keeps disciples staying. That's what we are in continually in awe of. That's what we continue to press into, the uniqueness of Jesus. Even when we stray, that's what we come back to. That's how it worked for Peter. Even after Peter strayed and denied Jesus, he came back to the uniqueness of Jesus. 
Acts 4 verse 12, this is Peter talking. He says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He comes back to the uniqueness of Jesus. That's why he stays. But we can go a question deeper. How do we stay convinced of the uniqueness of Jesus? I think Jesus' answer in verse 70 sheds light on that. He says, did I not choose you, the 12? That's how they stay convinced. They did not come to Jesus on their own power. Neither will they stay with Jesus on their own power. Our perseverance to keep following Jesus is, is not from us. It's from him. We keep holding on to Jesus because Jesus keeps holding on to us. Again, look at Peter's life. This is how it worked. Why did Peter persevere? Why did Peter come back? Why did Peter remain convinced of the uniqueness of Jesus? Was it because Peter was so strong? Or was it because the Lord was so faithful? Luke 22, 32 to 33 Jesus' words as he's predicting Peter's denial of him. He tells him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. How can Jesus speak with such certainty that Peter will come back, that Peter will persevere, Can he speak of that certainty because of Peter's strength or because of his faithfulness? Peter will hold on to Jesus, not because he'll never lose his grip on Jesus, but because Jesus won't lose his grip on him. Pastor Dane Ortland explains it like this. He says, when his two-year-old Benjamin begins to wade into a pool near their house, he goes in starting on the shallow end and he's holding his dad's hand. And as the water gets deeper, he holds on tight to his dad's hand. But Dane says a two-year-old's grip is not that strong. Before long, it is not he holding on to me, but me holding on to him. Left to his own strength, he will certainly slip out of my hand. But if I have determined that he will not fall out of my grasp, he is secure. He can't get away from me if he tried. No one can snatch us out of his hand. The same works for us, my friend. If you have come to believe in Jesus and follow him, it will take effort to persevere. But there is hope that you will persevere, not because of your strength, but because of his faithfulness. But this passage ends on a seemingly dark note. Jesus speaks not of one who stayed, but of one who left. And Judas is a case study. It's not that Judas started off well and then fell away. It's not that, Judas, that Jesus failed to keep hold of Judas. Now, what does it say? Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas was not a real disciple, that he would do the devil's work. Judas left Jesus because he never truly came to Jesus. And yet Judas shows Jesus' patience. I mean, think about this. The rest of the 11 guys, maybe they're just because they're a little thick-headed, but they had no idea. They had no idea that Judas would betray him. And because of the, and then Jesus never tipped his hand. He knew the whole time. 
And the, still, the, the fact that the, the other 11 guys didn't know, doesn't that show the Lord's amazing impartiality? That he would treat Judas the same as everybody else. Oh, my friend, this, that Judas, that, that no one suspected Judas should remind you that it's really easy to convince people that you're a Christian and you're actually not. And my friend, if that's you, if you, if you know deep down that you live a double life, you know that, how you, that you can make yourself appear to be a Christian, but your heart and life are far from Jesus. If that is you, would Jesus' patience be your tipping point that leads you to repentance? There is still time. Turn to him for real today. And Judas shows us that refusal and rejection and evil not only doesn't take Jesus by surprise, neither does it throw off Jesus's plan and Jesus's mission. In fact, amazingly enough, it's part of the plan and mission. What Judas and the devil intend for evil, God intends for good. So this Jesus, the one we have come to, believed in and stay with, He will allow the greatest evil in history, the killing of himself, to bring about the greatest good in history, the redemption of sinners. Who else is like that? Where else would we go besides him? Let's pray. Not to us, not to us, but Lord, to your name be the glory. What do we have that we have not received, O oh God? We did not choose you, you chose us. We did not give life to ourselves, you gave life to us. We did not die for ourselves, you died for us. And Lord, we will not keep ourselves, you will keep us. With the assurance of your faithfulness, strengthen us to keep going and to persevere. In times of busyness, in times of discouragement, discouragement. Would we rest on your strength and your promise? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.